0: My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Kwamu Eva Feku. She is the project officer acting as the Africa coordinator for futures Futures literacy at UNESCO. She's an experienced facilitator and lab designer involved in labs run mainly in Africa and Europe since 2014 and a full member of the World Futures Studies Federation and Plurality U Plus Network. This is, we've already had a little bit of a pre-conversation before I hit record, and I already know this is going to be a great conversation. So I want to welcome Eva to the show. Welcome to the Deep Dive. Thanks so
1: much. Noah, thank you for having me.
0: You know, I was going through so much of, of your work, and, you know, one of my challenges was figuring out where exactly to start, because... There's so much in your your thinking and in your background that I think is is so rich. So this is going to be likely one of those moments where I'm looking at the time and thinking to myself, "Damn, we're, we're running out of time, and I barely got through half these notes." So, so <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm already prepping myself for that moment. But I think as good a place to start is. Futures Literacy. And I want to give you an opportunity to define Futures Literacy and this component, at least it seemed to me to be a key component, of learning by doing.
1: Gotcha. Then what I'll do is actually start uh, with the definition that Real Miller, who is basically the father of Futures Literacy, even though he might not like me to, he might not like the fact that I say so, who says that future literacy is this capacity to understand why and how humans anticipate. But as you define, you know, what it is, you might not actually see what's the potential, what's the reason why, you know, I actually spent days and nights on, <laughs> on on this particular skill. The reason why uh, I found this skill to be particularly important is actually that there's been questions around what matters and how to situate ourselves in space and time. We do see that futures are important. I mean, that's basically, well, we're right in the midst of COVID, so let's just name it right from the get-go in this conversation. Um, This anxiety, this uncertainty that comes from understanding what the future is about and our reactions to what should be done or pretty much telling of who we are and, you know, um, how we situate ourselves in time and space regarding our communities of origin. If we were to understand the reflexes that we have, the frames that we use in order to think about the future, will it be a good way for us to actually embrace resilience, to also understand that development cannot be pursued in the ways that we currently think so? I remember in in a recent interview, I was telling, he also happened to be a, um, a great colleague of mine, how if your future is already predetermined, if you can actually predict what the future is about, on the basis of trends, of things that you know from the past and the present, there's this powerlessness that actually comes, And usually that's a feeling that we experience as young people, in my case also as Africans, and particularly in the case of women as well. And so this sense of being a part of minorities is actually this idea that I'm not the one to determine what my future is going to be about. Now, if we were to understand The why, the how, is there a way for us to actually be part of the conversation? This is kind of the bet that I've made. And that partly explains why I'm basically working particularly on
0: that. And, you know, there's even in that answer, there's that I was scribbling more notes. Um, So the one answer kind of opened up a bunch of different questions because I want to interrogate this idea of power. And the use of language. And, you know, even in a, in a portion of your answer, you mentioned the like minority in this kind of general sense of the word, right? Like me sitting here in the United States, black people are still considered the minority, even though the country is going, what do they say? People of color majority by whatever year they project that to be, right? So there's. And some say the reaction of the kind of political and social structure is a reaction to that, right? That as white people become minority in this country, their oversized conservatism and reaction to that reality kind of pushes them in a a different direction. So I've kind of framed that from a very American perspective to talk Mm -hmm. about power. And I wanna think about a more global perspective And where I'm going with that is oftentimes the world of future design and future thinking, and I'm just using kind of blanket statements, Mm -hmm. is very white, you know? And it took me, I think it takes others, like I had to look to find other folks. And it doesn't mean that you're not there, but it means that you're not getting this sort of attention, in my estimation, right? So this is my editorial where every time I read like a wired magazines it's filled with futurists that all look like out of some, you know, apocalyptic post-punk movie, right? Like they're all <laughs> like somebody out of like 12 Monkeys or something, right? They don't often look like people like you and people like me. So my my point to all that editorial is in a global way, people of color, whether you're talking about black people, Asian, South Asian, Um, South American, Latino, we are the majority, and yet I feel the futuring is largely being determined by the minority. So I'm curious after that really long editorial, do you feel what I've tried to explain? Do you think there's (laughs) something there? I'm curious as to how you are putting your perspective, an African perspective, within that future's conversation.
1: There's many different answers to what you've just said. The first one is obviously, I am one of the youngest, like the younger voices. And so part of the exposure is also related to that. Now, what's interesting also about future studies, and I would actually enlarge that to anticipation studies, which is about the study of any forms of anticipation, because since the future does not exist, only thing that exists in the present is our anticipation. So analyzing all of this, you know, from when you actually think about organizing this interview to actually planning for a wedding or structuring an economy, all of this fits within this frame. And what we see in terms of representation, I think is also related to our understanding of the importance of time and the importance of space at large. If you have a tool-based approach, to the future, then the only way to be relevant is actually to know how to master the tools. So for example, in front of you you have your microphones and obviously you know if you're not competent, then you know you're not relevant to discussions around microphones. Now if you have an approach that is based on capacity and on, on competence at large, so it's actually about you know speaking, for example then you actually have a lot more possibilities for you to be relevant in discussions around speech than just in conversation around the mastery of microphones. Now, we had the same situation for futures, where for the longest time, and it's actually fairly recent disciplines, if we're also being honest, where the conversation were around the methodologies that we're using in the evaluation the assessments of those methodologies. So it was, for example, around horizon scanning, which is basically about curves of societies, about Delphi, around the application of futures wills, you name it, a series of tools that we had at our disposal. And of course, what happened was that some people had been trained to use those tools and others had not Now, historically, if I'm just taking that route as well, for the African continent, what happened right after the crisis, the economic crisis that we experimented in the 1980s, we had a series of organizations, including the UNDP, which started to structure a series of uh, foresight projects and forecast projects in Africa, which actually helped a series of governments to actually think about restructuring their economies. And all at once again, what happened in the 1990s was very much tool-based, very much tool-oriented. Now, what we see is that we had the discussion with the experts, those who knew how to deal with those tools, and then the rest of the world was basically not part of those conversations. So the futures that we're producing were fairly limited, because once again, you had the exclusive room, the club of futurists, and then the rest of the humanity. Now, what I really love about the agenda that we're pushing together with a large community of practitioners that are actually coming from all over the world and do look like you and do look like me. And sometimes they don't look like you and they don't look like me either. And that's the whole point of embracing pluriversal futures, futures that are not about one center of this is the right way, but actually embracing different centers. And it's not about, and we're talking about minorities earlier, We're saying there's political minorities out there. And some people might say, well, you know, if you train the minorities to use the tools, then all good to go. You know, we've done it. The margins is now back into the center. And obviously, I'm using bell hooks when I'm talking from margin to center. The whole point here is not to say we should train the minorities, we should train the margins to look like the center. It's more about, am I able to embrace a truth that does not look like what I'm used to, and is most probably more complex than what I'm used to. And so in the way I would embrace the work that anticipation specialists can actually do is really how can we act as conduits um, for knowledge? There was a friend of mine who actually used that word and I, I love it. Can we act as conduits for, for, for knowledge, actually hear what's in the room and understand that there's a pluriversality that reflects our realities? And this is, I think, the role of those political minorities that we're talking about, because we see the problem, sometimes we even, or the reflections of that problem. And by this sensorial, you know, this, yeah, very sensory realization of where the problem lies, we can actually be part of the answer and build it together with a larger community that looks like us and sometimes does not.
0: And, you know, I I think that's, like really important, this idea of, you know, bringing more and more people in to these conversations. And and that's, that was really the root of my kind of inquiry and search to make sure that, you know, we are looking beyond the steampunk reality of what future and futurism is branded as, and getting to the point where it is not just a Tech utopian type of conversation, but it is actually a very human-based conversation. And you you mentioned this idea of of the future and as a public good, like that came up in in one of one of the essays that are that or reports that you published and co-published before this conversation. And I want to before we get to these sort of anticipation because I have, I want to spend quite a bit of time on that, but. The idea of of the future as a public good is a different conversation than often the way in which the future is often thought of, even if we're using like a COVID reality as something to be apprehensive about, something to be afraid of. And and so I wanted to give you a, a chance to kind of talk through or think through this idea of going into our capacity... You know, this this conduit of knowledge that you kind of described there with the core conceit of the future, this place that we're anticipating as a public good that will serve all of us.
1: Now, thanks so much for that question, because that question got me also thinking about something else. So that's <laughs> that's always good. That was the goal. Good. Nick, <laughs> like you're referring to um, a piece that we co-wrote with Boudmi Etelor and Robin Bourgeois around the capacity to decolonize. And it's true that for us, there was um, a correlation that sometimes we we don't make between decolonial theory, as, you know, has been advanced, especially by Latin America, but also by Africa, and anticipatory studies. In fact, what I see in terms of, like, when it comes to knowledge production, there's, in fact, a realization that is made, you know, in all disciplines. And that realization is the fact that, Well, first of all, there's more to the world than we allow ourselves to know, uh, which I think is also an important statement. There's a second one that is also around this, you know, not only a paradox, I think it's actually something that is pretty embarrassing. is not the word I want to use, more like an awkwardness around the way we produce knowledge and the way we teach knowledge this idea that there's a divide between the knowledge producer and the learners of this knowledge that we get. And we could see that uh, very specifically in colonial contexts where, you know, basically you had a white anthropologist telling you this is how uh, this community or this society functions. And obviously, then you had the community learn about how it functions from the eyes of somebody that was external to the community. So that was a very evident situation that was you know, a bit bizarre and a bit puzzling. But we had the same situation for futures. I'm actually considering a friend of mine to actually explore something around a convention in 2005 around the future of HIV and AIDS in Africa, which was a set of scenarios that were built some almost 20 years ago, so 16 years ago in 2005. And when we think back to those type of processes, and I was just naming this one, uh, but that's also the case when we're thinking about the future of the countryside in France or like agribusiness at large, those who produce those futures and those who actually have to suffer or, you know, to suffer from the consequences positive or negative externalities are not the same. And whenever you have this divide between those who produce the said knowledge and those who would actually have to benefit or to suffer from the consequences of the knowledge that has been produced, you have a situation where just something is amiss. You don't know exactly what, but something is is just wrong. And so I believe that what has been so powerful around decolonial theory has been structured around participatory processes, around collective intelligence, around this idea that if you want for the world to look like what you eyes see and what your heart knows, you need to... um, have more people in the room, but it's not just you know in terms of numbers because you've put two women here, two Indian there, and then I don't know what, uh, two people who might have any forms of uh, you know, or like I don't know what type of minorities we might name, and then you've ticked the boxes. It's actually about understanding how learning that comes from those different people who are in the room can actually allow you to transform, like it's and it's pretty powerful in the sense that. I understand that because I don't fully understand you, there's something that I can get from you that maybe won't speak to me right from the get-go, but I need to allow time for that learning to sink in. And all of the application of decolonial theory may be to the law, because I'm actually a jurist by training, so that's my, the core of like, my research interests are actually around this area, or things applied to future studies. Whenever we apply decolonial theory, we tend to actually see that this moment for pause while also understanding and embracing urgency?
0: uh, Because I wanna spend a lot of time on the idea of decolonization. And it's a word and language that I think has, popular is not the right word, but I think it's come more into a social zeitgeist um, over, let's say, three to five years, even though this has been laying in meaning out of a historical context and put into now other places. And I'm reminded of an essay, not to say that this essay is like the catch-all be-all, but I have referred to it at other times on the show. Decolonization is not a metaphor. And it talks through this idea of taking that the notion of decolonization is specific, and has specific remedy that is different from other social justice movements and using the language of decolonization as a metaphor and kind of putting it on top of other processes isn't quite effective, right? Um, So that's kind of the premise of this essay. And it's um, Eve Tuck, and this might be in the show notes, K. Wayne Yang, I think, but doesn't matter. One did not have to read the essay in order to understand the question. My point is, as someone deeply engaged in a decolonization process as it pertains to the futures and existing in a reality where I think if one uses the language of decolonization, they're thinking of places like you mentioned, Latin America. They're thinking about Africa right so this word comes with a particular history and weight to it even as we're using that word and the process behind it to define a different future so how do you contextualize decolonization so it is not a metaphor or do you feel that it that is less important relative to the active work of decolonization Not a perfectly worded question because there's a lot of stuff in there, but that's just how it goes sometimes.
1: (laughs) I support this idea of decolonization not being a metaphor, and I think I'd like to use the word decolonization less, and I've been faced with, with a situation where I actually have to use it more. Why would I like to use the word less? It's because, just as you said, it's a word that has weight. When I see some initiatives, especially Western-led initiatives that actually mention this idea of decolonizing futures or decolonizing any other forms of knowledge production in order to rebuild agency or empower people. I always feel like we need to take a step back. When you use the word decolonization, it's actually a reminder of the need for greater humility. And if that's the case, then you need to pause. You need to actually weigh the word that you've used. In the meantime, deconization, and it's probably related to that very reason, deconization is a word that is also scary for many people and all over the world. And it's not just like, you know, Westerners will be like scared of deconization and Africans would not be. We see it particularly in the, in the Francophone space in Africa, where we don't actually use the word deconization that much. We use it, you know, to refer to specific events that are related to decolonizing our states in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. But when it comes to decolonizing our governments, our way of thinking about the way our societies are governed or structured, the word does not come in as being, you know, decoloniality. And so it also shows that we're kind of sometimes in the Voldemort situation if I'm using some Harry Potter language where, you know, people are afraid of the elephant in the room, so we just don't pronounce the words. So that's where I end up like using this terminology to say, hey, you know, this is important and we should not hide away because not using the word is not removing the problem in any ways. And so what I see in decolonizing being more popular as you were just starting uh, your question it is important because I see more, more of, let's say, people who look like you and look like me owning the word and actually using it. And in that sense, there's an empowerment that comes from their use of this terminology. And that's the case. This is really powerful. But in the meantime, there's also this risk of you know, the reappropriation of the critique by dominant structures who would actually be used to, using this terminology to play it against us. And this is why I think that a shared narrative, this negotiation of meaning, the good thing about the conversation is that we don't exactly know what it looks like. And because we don't, we cannot say, oh, this person was wrong or this person was right. And in that sense there's a way for us to engage in a larger conversation that would engage not only people who look like you and look like me, but actually to propose ways for humanity at large to be part of the conversation. And this is the power of decolonization, is the fact that it's not only an African story. It starts in Africa, but it goes way beyond, just because the diaspora are there, first of all, but also because humanity, as a diaspora at large, is there as well.
0: And yeah, you know you said something that's really interesting because it it's a part of the report that I kind of highlighted where you made this really relevant point that we don't know what decolonization looks like right it's something that we're working through and there's other iterations right like I always use this term not that I came up with it but people use it like there's no there's not one future right I talk about viable futures right I put the S like in an apostrophe and make sure that, you know, we're thinking about this way of going down several potential tributaries to get to, you know, any one of number of futures. And we're kind of creating that every day, right? As we kind of go through this concept and every moment, this concept of time is kind of slippery, right? And so when you make the point that we, we don't know what decolonization is, Looks like, and incorporating another section, another time when you said this idea of like sensory knowledge and just a bunch of different ways in which our knowledge is beyond written words and, you know, things we download online and, and all the rest of it. But I want to juxtapose that with we do know what colonization looks like, right? We do have a long, way too long history and administration of colonization, right? When I think of colonization beyond the violence of it, I actually think of bureaucracy. I don't know why, but maybe I've seen too many movies, but my, <laughs> my, you know. That like could the, be the case. My, yeah, it definitely could be the case, right? But what what I mean by that is that the violence, psychological and physical violence of colonization is often in my metaphorical imagining this fairly innocuous clerk, right? It's the person who's been put into a world to govern and this myriad of ways in which the violence of the empire happens, happens through this fairly innocuous, weaselly looking person, likely wearing a bowler hat with a mustache, likely has an English accent, at least in the movie, because no matter who you're from, where you're from, they gotta have an English accent, you know? (laughs) And, and so I say all that to say that we are in a moment where, and I'll, and I'll read a little bit of the, of the quote, right, because it talks about decolonizing imagination. And it says, on, on the one hand, what this means in terms of one of the key challenges of decolonizing our imaginations is that our built systems, education systems, political systems, physical and social environments Cultures, cultures, worldviews, et cetera, were based on or have been heavily influenced by the systems and values inherited from the past. And so all of that to say, even as we cannot see it, how do we navigate our imaginations to break from this past when some of our imaginations are based on that past? <laughs> like my clerk example, <laughs> right?
1: It's funny because I'm currently reading um, a sci-fi novel. It's true that I don't read that much sci-fi. It's true that work in teachers, but I have to say that it's not my, my top genre. But a quotation that I got from that novel was precisely on that. How come we tend to forget the thing that has that have structured us the most? And when it comes to frames, this is basically what we're tapping into. So, as part of a futures literacy process, the thing that we focus on is revealing the existence of anticipatory assumptions. What we call anticipatory assumptions are basically the entry points to our futures. It sounds like big words, but it really isn't. It's basically whenever you project yourself into like a project or into space or into time you always have to start from somewhere. You have to assume things about the worlds that could be in order to represent, to picture yourself in there. And so what we tend to see is that what we call to be like, you know, a probable future has less to do with probability in terms of like what we actually happens on the basis of like, you know, mathematical probabilities and has very much to do with what is allowed to be thought about the future. So what I tend to see is that if I were to ask you about in 2050, uh, would you believe that it's probable for you know a government in the US, for example, to be fully composed of uh, black officials? I'm not saying that it's something that is desirable, but if I'm asking you if it's something that you would believe to be probable, you would say no on the basis of what you know about past history that is true, but also on the basis of what you're allowed to Believe to be, you know, probable for the future. Now, I've made it a black answer, but it actually speaks to many other realities. Right now, we have a strong crisis in France where I'm located around the youth that feels like kind of like screwed over. I don't have any other terms for the situation that (laughs) we're in. And this starts with our educational systems. I'm not even talking about the fact that it's difficult to get a job right in the midst of COVID for many people in their early 20s. I'm also thinking about how in our educational systems, there's a good way to lead a good life and there's many bad ways to lead a bad life. And this idea that there's a manual that leads us To the future is part of the difficulties that we're currently facing. Now, what's interesting about what you said when you started your question, you reflected back to what we know about the bad past that we don't want. And I would challenge you on the fact that there's many things that we don't know about the bad past that we do not want. Just because the past has been blurred for many of us Obviously, for African-Americans, that's even more evident because there's many things that you unfortunately uh, would not know about your past as an African-American for various reasons. You might not know where, you know, what original community you're from when your ancestors actually traveled by force all the way from Africa to the Americas. But there's actually also other things about the cultural expressions of who we are, where they're coming from, the blurred lines between different forms of legacies, conflicting legacies as well. And what's interesting about exploring futures is not so much because we're like so sure of what the past was about or so sure about what the present is about. It's actually about exploring those liminalities and understanding, yes, I don't know what the past actually is about, but I do know that I'm there for a reason. I do know that I have an identity that is actually the, fruit of many different things that are, you know, not always pleasant. And it's by exploring those liminalities, engaging in difficult conversations, but that are meaningful because they're difficult, that we can actually embrace, you know, what our past has been about and what our, our future could be in a way that is less deterministic, I would say.
0: And you know, it's pushing back against that deterministic nature that I think is is obviously really Important and you know there's I, I want to use that because I, I I almost went off the rails in a total other <laughs> direction so that look up was me stopping myself from doing <laughs> from doing that because I want to spend some time on this anticipation so the anticipation for the future the anticipation for emergence and how those connect to imagination because now it's a it's a word that we've sort of that we're weaving more and more into the conversation and i think it's it's a word not very different from decolonization but it also has a particular weight to it as well where the notion of imagination or musing or whatever other language you want to use growing up for me at least was not used in a serious academic way. It wasn't used in like when I started work coming into a Wall Street career, imagination was not why they hired you, right? It, it was um, a whole bunch of other reasons. And I say all that to say that imagination is ultimately the most, I would say, argue one of the most important elements of making our world work. Everything that's ever existed started because a person imagined it, right? <laughs> um, and then that thing became a reality to some extent. So I want to pivot us into this anticipation and allow you to kind of walk through the, the difference or where how it connects rather, anticipation for the future, anticipation for emergence, and how those are rooted in the notion of imagination.
1: Big question. Because there's actually two questions in one.
0: Or maybe Yeah, three. I always do that. Um, <laughs> I, I always do that. You're lucky I stopped myself before I got into this whole, like, Black pessimism thing. That just something you said triggered this notion of anticipation and how we go down this road. So I, I'm going to stop myself again but and let you continue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I might address Black pessimism in... in One of my answers to your three questions. (laughs) Okay. On the notion of imagination and how it's becoming trendier and trendier, what's interesting is earlier I was telling you how in Francophone Africa, we tend to use less the term like decoloniality and derivatives that is associated with that in the way it has been developed over the last few decades. But the word that we use a lot more and I would say that we've been using even earlier than some of our peers in Anglophone Africa, is actually the word imagination. You see it in the works, for example, by Ashlin Bembe, that is also quite well known in the English-speaking environment, you see it also around uh, what Aminata Traoré, who's a famous uh, altermundialist, I don't know how to translate that, we're looking for another type of globalization in Mali, around this idea of the rape of our imagination as well. So, and of course, uh, needless to say that you find it in Fanon as well, well, in many different words. But this idea that there's something that has been held captive, that is something that has been stolen from us. And that thing being our imagination is actually something that is pretty strong. And it's not by mistake that Riel has phrased the work that we do around digital literacy as something that is supposed to uh, help us overcome the poverty of the imagination, the fact that there's this crisis. And of course, you can even find it in earlier texts and philosophy. Actually, it's a pretty old question, this idea of the poverty of the imagination. And in the meantime, as you're saying that, it's true that it's something that is not the core of our value creation systems. Nobody is getting paid for being, you know, an imagination driver or in any other forms, at least not officially. And this paradox for me is actually something that states a lot about the economic and political systems that we are. Because if something is driving your society but is not recognized as such, then it probably shows that your society is probably not about what it should be. So that may be one first point that I think is important for us to flag. Another point around the role of the imagination is also the weight that it has um, and the sphere that we have also when we say that learning is about wondering and wondering, I'm thinking about an initiative of a friend of mine in Mali called Kabako, where actually Kabako means uh, wondering. And there's really this idea that, you know, any forms of learning comes from asking yourself questions. And it feels like we don't live in a society, and I'm like, I would say at large, so maybe in Cameroon, where I'm from, or in France, where I live, we're not in societies that ask many questions. We're often afraid of questions, the same way we're afraid of our imaginations. And so what's also interesting is that by probing people, uh, you know, challenging them with questions, provoking them in a certain ways, you engage in actually interesting perspective for a society because you allow people within members of a society to actually ask themselves, why am I here? And what do I bring? Questions that we don't often ask ourselves for a variety of reasons. That was my answer to your first question. <laughs> if you want to dive into a second question, you tell me. But I have still your question in mind around anticipation for emergence and anticipation for the future.
0: Go for it. <laughs> that's my that's my, my <laughs> prompt to keep making these connections. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Anticipation for emergence, anticipation for the future are basically the two different ways, or the, should I say, the two different reasons for using the future. Um, this is what Riel actually articulates in his book, uh, Transforming the Future Anticipation, in the 21st Century. The idea is to say that when we anticipate, there's many different forms of anticipation. I was telling you about this planning for the interview or, you know, just, thinking that maybe if you're too hot or too warm, what should you do? There's like many different forms that may look benign for some of them and others that may seem more important, depending on the scales and the actors and the consequences of the decisions that you make on the basis of those anticipations. But regardless, you the two reasons that we, we articulate are anticipation for the future and anticipation for emergence. Anticipation for the future is basically any forms of planning, preparation, optimization. It's this idea that there's a utility behind using the future. And this utility is we're using the future in order to actually plan better, because there's something that we need to know about the future that would make our lives better. And it's on the basis of this bet that we can actually dive in. Now... Actually, what's interesting about my explanation of anticipation for emergence, which comes next, is that it's also made on the bet around the use of the future, which is still this idea that, you know, thinking about the future could make our lives better and can actually build hope and resilience. But it's built on this idea that futures are not useful in themselves. It's not so much whether you have the good future and you found out what the future in 2022 or in 2032 or in two thousand. 300, I don't know, is the right future and, you know, you've ticked the box. It's actually about allowing for the possibility for different futures to exist, for different narratives to be in the room, and allowing that those narratives to actually inform your decision-making and your belonging to a specific set of communities. And by making this bet and adopting this type of behavior to where it towards the future, this posture, actually think about using the future as a posture, as a position in time and space. Then from then on, you can actually embrace emergence, embrace uncertainty and actually believe, well, you know, the world is uncertain, might as well go with it, you know? (laughs) And so it's on this basis of this understanding that we've actually articulated those two reasons for for using the future. And why is it powerful? It's because one informs the other, if you're actually more comfortable around this idea that you don't know the future and you won't be able to know the future, but you can use the future to actually get to hear about past narratives, narratives of the past as well, hear from what other people have to say and allow for this learning to sink in, as we said earlier, then yes, you'll be able to actually Plan probably better. Doesn't mean that you will get a better world, and I wouldn't be able to tell because there's a series of ethical questions that are related to that, but you'll definitely be able to actually embrace the future better and understand better how your society function.
0: You know, when you were going through the, the idea of, of, of anticipation, what really struck me is the, the notion that there's so much fluidity. Within these ideas, that they they actually are, it's it's almost impossible to think of them in in any linear way. Despite the fact that so much of our conventional thinking around time is linear, in the sense that today is Friday and we set this conversation at a particular time of the day, and you know it's. This is literally a question that I'm kind of fumbling through in the moment because it would seem like the owning of time, the moment we were able to put time on our wrist or on our phones or all the way in which we've sort of tried to capture the notion of time seems to work completely in opposition to the the way in which you described anticipation and I wanted to introduce how do you struggle with that in the way that I seem to be in just answering asking this question or the, the temporal notions of, of time right sort of open-ended but I'm just curious how you think about that
1: I have an intellectual answer and a personal answer. I'll start with the personal one because you ask about my struggle. <laughs> And I have to say that I do struggle with this notion because I spend most of my intellectual and professional time telling people that there's different temporalities and that urgency is also to be understood, you know, from different levels because we do believe that things are urgent and I think that they are. In the meantime, it doesn't mean that we need to answer, uh, you know, to react to them in an urgent way that is totally, you know, that disregards our circumstances and personalities but that being said also as a person I also like you know to fix things I like to react to things if there's a problem you call me and I'm like okay let's find solutions together you know and in my way of like playing for my own personal life I do see this type of like paradox that exists and I think this answers well to your first point around fluidity we tend to always like observe paradoxes and we don't know where to make them fit in. And, you know, as a jurist, what's really interesting is that, you know, we're supposed to fit things within boxes. If they do not fit, then we actually have to find some kind of a narrative that would justify what it would fit better into one specific category rather than another. Or why we should create a new category so that this particular situation actually fits in. Now, when we actually embrace, um, and I think in the paper that you're quoting, there was this lovely um, quotation um, from, I think, Leanne Simpson, um, who's a, a first people activist uh, from Canada, uh, as well as also a musician. So I always find this, this element to be interesting, who actually qualifies that what's been taken away from us uh, in terms of colonization is actually our fluidity and how what defines basically colonization is the rigidity of the frames that we evolve in. And so when we're diving into this notion of who owns time and who owns you know, our definition of time, our power to define time, this is very much related to that particular struggle of you know, how rigid time has been considered. Historically speaking, and there's this book that I always quote, God is Read uh, by Vine Deloria, where basically Vindaloria actually states that there's a language problem between First Peoples and Western communities which arrive, who arrive in the Americas. And this notion is actually around time. This idea that you had Westerners who considered that the time was linear, and you could hear it in words such as development, in words such as progress, everything is like linear, while the first people's understanding of the situation would be more structured around relationship, this idea that this relationship with nature. So it was a much more spatial understanding of the world. And so when you have people that use time as their frame and others that use space as their frame, and the two actually, you know, enter into communication actually has, have to interact then, you know, you cannot understand one another, even if you speak the same language, let's say they all speak English. And so what we've seen is that we want to actually embrace different forms of temporalities. When you're talking about the past, for example, and this idea that we're supposed to know the past, I'm telling you maybe we don't know the past. That's also normal because it's a different temporalities that is not set because we're still writing history and not just because we are, you know, building some kind of a future, but also because we're building our understanding of what we are about, what our identity is about, what our communities are about. And so this notion of past is actually deeply rooted in who we are and we're still defining it. And the same thing goes for the future. Our ancestors had an understanding of what our futures were going to be about. And maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong, but this is still in the making. And so all of those temporalities are just forming a layer, different layers that are fluid from which we pass from one to the next. And this idea of embracing our anticipatory systems is actually a good way for us to see how fluid our societies can be. And they are, because even when we don't study them, we still process through different systems. And so it's more powerful for us to understand how it functions in order to liberate ourselves rather than to remain ignorant and therefore to just like diffuse false conceptions of knowledge, false conceptions of our own identities. And,
0: you know, I'm going to stay connected to the time thing for just another moment because there's a, there's a...
1: Because you're afraid of time running out? Exactly. (laughs) But
0: that's literally the question, right? Because time, because what I was going to ask or attempt to ask is we've also made The notion of time, linear or primarily when it's linear, a function of abundance and scarcity. We either have a lot of it, we don't have enough of it. You know, we're weighing, you know, time is money, right? All of these sort of colloquialisms that have tried to commoditize time, you know, will say, oh, we don't have time to weigh the options, right? Like I'm just thinking of all the different ways in which we throw this word around. And it made me think of, um, you made a remark earlier when you said, I'm paraphrasing, obviously that when we ask questions, we don't live in societies primarily that ask questions, right? Because questions in my mind imply time, right? I'm always someone who's like, well, let's slow down, right? Like I'm always the slowdown guy when posed with a challenge because I think we need time to think, to ask, to provoke. So I'm curious, even as we have a timer ticking on down below of the screen, you know, do you see that abundance scarcity element being a part of how we think about this, particularly when we're thinking about time primarily? in a linear fashion.
1: This idea of scarcity, and um, it's, it's very much related to progress, because once again, when I t- started to explain what anticipatory assumptions were, I was telling you how, when you project yourself into time and space, you always need to assume things about what this potential you know, timeframe could actually look like. And um, what we've seen is that we've made the hypothesis that the world that we knew today could actually continue and get better. And this was part of the reason why we've structured our use of different forms of different resources. So everything that we commodify, just as you said, may be oil and gas, maybe water, maybe even humans, you know, if we're thinking way back to slavery, or even not giving that far away in, in, in time, just the way we handle human resources management uh, today. All of those are actually all linked uh, all together. What I see around this notion of owning time that you were putting earlier, this this idea that time is still at the core of like everything that we do, but in the meantime we don't, we have a weird position towards time, and I think it's very much related to finality, this idea that when things end, they end, and we're not comfortable with ending, and I think this comfort that comes with our, how would I put it? The discomfort that comes with our own disappearance has very much to do with the difficulty that we have to embrace scarcity and actually consider it as a reality.
0: Yeah. Disappearance, it reminds me of a a book I read recently um, where people, um, their society, they're living on an island and things slowly disappear and then they lose the thinking for it. So they'll just wake up one day and birds won't be there. And then slowly but surely, the entire society can't remember even what the word meant, or so on and so on. It's, it's actually a, a really good book, but um, and nonetheless. Which one is it? I want the reference. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'll. 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 Because we're we're getting to the last two segments of the show, off the dome and and the drop. And I want to get one more question in, but I'll I'll get you the copy of the name of the book. Um, <laughs> so I, I want I want to get to one last question because you know we could have keep going. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask this one in particular, because the language is very, it's very American in its perspective. And I'll explain as I ask it. So the question I wanted to ask is, there's a section of the report where you talk about moving from an Afrocentric frame to a shared frame. And I wanted to give us an opportunity to talk about that a little bit, only because even the word Afrocentric might mean different things to different people, but as someone born in the Caribbean, I was raised here, the notions of like Afrocentricity and Afrocentrism, even though I know it's a global conversation, it also feels from just when I grew up, a very like 1980s, 1990, consciousness of black Americans conversation, like in the way my mind works around it. So I wanted to, and it's funny because here, Notions of, of Afrocentrism that I grew up with have now been totally corrupted by a bunch of charlatans and this idea of like hotepism, which I'm not even going to go into, but maybe it's a term <laughs> you, you might be somewhat familiar with on the, on the interwebs. But nonetheless, I want to give a, a chance to kind of talk through that notion and, and hear your thoughts on it. Because when I saw the word, it just literally conjured up, again, talking about those paths and systems, it conjured up a, a whole different thing for me. So I'd love to get your take on it. And then we'll do off the dome and the drop.
1: Noted. So what do we mean by Afrocentricity? This one would be more related to African, the African history of the word. So very much like a continental definition of the word, which happened was, which was the production of different theories around our Egyptian legacy, for example. It was also structured around strong authenticity-driven Uh, policies or initiatives. We're thinking about President Mobutu's authenticity politics, uh, which was about, you know, renaming uh, the different cities, renaming people as well. So using only Congolese names, clothes also, um, which were actually pretty nice clothes, I have to say. It was pretty, like, that's on another note, things I actually appreciate. The problem that we had which I think is also one of the greatest strengths of um, Africa as a continent and an inspiration for the world and actually the home space for those conversations is the fact that it's syncretic by nature. Well, I don't know if it's by nature or by culture, and I don't want to engage in that conversation. It's not the most interesting part of it, but there's something that is clearly syncretic, which means that we have this ability to embrace different legacies. But because we do, we enrich our complexity. And the problem is, just as you said earlier around the problem that we have with questions, which is that, you know, when things are do not have an end, you know, they don't, you cannot answer just with one, one single sentence and then it's done. Then we're like, oh, you know, let's, you know, let's get over it, which is a shame because, you know, it doesn't mean that it's more complicated than others. It just requires for people to phrase it differently, maybe to take more time to think about what they're going to say and actually more time to think about what the other person is saying for you to actually say, okay, that speaks to me. Let me slow down and actually understand what that means. And so what's interesting about Afrocentricity is that it was a powerful tool, an instrumental tool, And I think it's met its purpose. It still would meet its purpose today for it to continue with Afrocentric processes, and there still are many on the continent. But it was not addressing this syncretic invitation that the African continent was about, and so this idea of the shared frame, and maybe there's even another terminology. And as I evolve, maybe in ten years from now, if we have the same conversation, I'll be telling you it was not shared frame that I would wanted for Bunmi Hoba, and I to actually go for. Maybe it's another term, but there's really this idea that okay, we need to recenter in order to understand what we were about, but we should not forget. That actually we've been about those different conflated narratives all in one. We've been about those different legacies from like the past, from the future, from the present, all in the same space. What do we do with it? That's really the question, more than just selecting one legacy that we believe to be the most authentic and then dive it right in because it does not answer all of the questions that are at the table, because then you have people who do not fit in the box all over Africa will tell you, you know. Where do I fit in? And you'll be like, uh, "You're not in my boxes," and that's not a satisfactory
0: answer in any ways. No, that's an awesome way to think about it, and you've you know given me more to think about, which is why I love having these conversations. Like they they have a finite moment in time because episodes are not forever. But the important thing and the thing that's most meaningful to me is. A these conversations they go all over the world and and people are are always um, sending me notes about them and asking more questions and my guests find each other you know and on their own and all these kind of amazing things happen so I guess it kind of speaks to that um, non-linear ways in which we kind of encapsulate a conversation over these hour and x minutes but it has a, a lifetime and a, and a messaging um, way beyond that so. Oh, and the name of the book is The Memory Police. I was looking for the author because I didn't just want to give you the name. And it's Yoko Ogawa is the author. And the book is The Memory Police, the one I referenced with peoples living on this island and things disappearing. Um, really good book. And not overly long. So not that there's anything wrong with long books. Um, so, you know... <laughs> I, I want to use the, get into the final two segments of the show, which is um, off the dome and the drop. You know, off the dome is just a, a, a few very quick questions, um, literally first thing on, off the top of your head. So I have three of those. And the first one is, what is the one piece of advice that you would give your younger self? And younger can be any particular time, you know. Again, t- time is fluid, so I'm not defining it, defining <laughs> it for you. But um, what is some advice that you will, would like to share with your younger self?
1: It's funny because actually, my first name Kwamu, is my great grandmother's name, so I'm actually named the grandmother by all of my aunts and and uncles. So technically, if you're asking my younger self, that could even be a very old person. <laughs> <laughs> talking about fluid temporalities, right? This is a difficult question because um, I tend to um, adopt the very like retrospective, which I believe is not always useful because I never know if decisions that I've made in the past were actually the very reason why I'm here now. I would say that it's okay to rest would be an, an advice to my younger self in the sense that uh, I always believe that I have not done enough and that haven't been curious enough, that I haven't asked enough questions, that I haven't in- interacted with enough people. And I think this permission to rest is something that is important to the. And I see that obviously rest has been at the core of many movements. And I'm thinking about the NAP ministry, for example, this type of thing. So obviously this is also something that, that speaks to me, uh, but yes, this permission I think is really
0: important. Yeah, rest is super critical. <laughs> I 100% am a, a fan of massive, <laughs> massive amounts of, of rest. You know, I I call it, we need to be more gentle with ourselves. You know, it's very, very important. This is a futures-based question. As you think about these kind of possible viable futures, again, plural, who is the, or yeah, who is the one or two people in your viable futures that you would want on your team? Like, they're your squad going forward. Like, who would you want to have in the trenches with you as you build this future? And it could be anybody, real. I mean, not real or imagined, but it doesn't need to be someone in the present. It could be someone historical, whoever. Oh, Oh,
1: that's a different question. I thought you were going to ask me, like, for concrete names of people. No, No, it doesn't need to be, like, your your friend. It could be,
0: like... (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, I would really.
1: So I'll be bringing my dog yeah. with me and then. Yeah.
0: It's it's more like, you know, who do I really think would be like, okay, we got, a, we got a mission, we got to do this. I'm locking arms with these people, you know, just one or two.
1: In terms of um, attributes of people that I like as part of my team, I like firm. Um, that's a big question. I guess people would allow me to understand myself better. Uh, but people that I would be interested in in also learning together with, that would probably be uh, my my direct answer. If I have like a person like in history, I'm not sure I have like a set person. Mm. Just there's cool people that I read from, and I'm like, oh, this are really cool people that I wouldn't say. Uh, These people I want to work from because you never know from what you read whether you'd
0: like to re- actually work with them or not. That's a good know. point. Some of the people we like to read, they could have been assholes. Like who knows, right? <laughs> Like I never thought about that, right? Like,
1: and I, do, I'm like, I don't want to ruin like any type of like image that I have. I'm like I'm very happy to just read from you, and that's more than enough. You already allow me to
0: to learn so much. Let me not. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and it's funny you say that because I always say like you never want to meet your heroes, like even like artist that I might like I'm like oh do I really want to meet that person now nah, I'm good I' just rather like let me just love your music right like I don't need to like, like <laughs> meet you in real life so that's a good point right like you know Fannie Lou Hamer could have been just a jerk right like <laughs> I mean don't tell him that I mean, I doubt it but you know it's, it's possible she just could have been a really difficult person it doesn't seem like that way or you know whoever it doesn't really matter but um good very very good point. Um, and this is the last off the dome. And this is a question I've actually asked several times, but I think it would be a particularly interesting one for you, p- given our conversation. If you had a choice, would you rather go to the past and meet your ancestors or go into the future and meet your, I guess, the ones who came after you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the thing about, there's a bias in the question in terms of... Um, I know that I'm going into the future just because it's already later now than when we started the interview, right? That's true. So this this is not a, a choice that I have to make because it's already, it's been made for me. So I guess that it would be more related to whether I'm actually ready to face my demons and think about like, you know, diving, <laughs> meeting my ancestors. I guess it would be fun. Depends on what would be the circumstances, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Because otherwise you're very happy to just stay in the present because at least this one won't disappoint you,
0: Oh, will it? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. See, plot twist. You answered that question. Comp- Everyone answers that question differently the times I've asked it, and you took it in a completely different direction, So, which is awesome. Um, so I want to get to the drop. It's the final segment of the show, and it's our opportunity to just sh- share something with our listeners. It could be anything at all. It doesn't have to be something super serious. Guests have shared Anything they want. I have a drop. I hope you're ready for a drop. Even though you sprinkle some drops in in the show. Like I wrote some notes because that book, God is Red. Did I get the title right? Yes. Okay. I'm going to look that up afterward. But nonetheless, officially, um, this is the time for the drop. So I can go first or you can go first. doesn't really matter.
1: I'm curious as to which one you have. So go first, but I have
0: mine. Okay. I actually have two, um, but they're both um, shorter books. Um, one, the first one is by Jamaica Kincaid um, and it's called A Small Place. It's um small book, not long, but Jamaica Kincaid is a West Indian writer and so there's some affinity there. But she, she, the, A Small Place is just a really interesting book and it actually ironically deals with a lot of the things we kind of talked about today, these ideas of Colonialism and who it impacts, and very very tight imagining, but blistering language that I was just like blown by it. I, I read it in like an hour. It's not a long, not a long book, but it's um it stayed with me since then. So that's my first drop, and my second drop is um by Thomas King, uh, another um first person's writer, and it's called The Thing About Stories, and it's a collection of essays and kind of written lectures that he's presented on like a radio show, I believe, and it just talks a lot about stories and how we think about them and, you know, the world exists on the back of a turtle kind of thing. But again, it, it was very um, interesting and, and touching to me in the moment that I read it. And I actually used it in a syllabus for like a future design course that I'm, that I'm working on. So nonetheless, those are my two drops, two books this episode.
1: Noted. Uh, for me, those were not books, even though there would be many books that were recommend on the basis of this conversation, which are not always recent. I mean, one that I think would be pretty like easy and has been strong. Um, I've seen that my my best friend, it actually allowed my best friend to understand a little bit more the struggle that the Black Diaspora has had in the world. And that was this book was homegoing, which is been quite famous by uh, Jesse, uh, so not necessarily a new book. Um, but what I had in mind initially was actually a song. <laughs> and so I'll post it, uh, probably I'll send it in your notes so that you know our listeners can also uh, get to see it. But it's called Aiche Donumi from uh, an Angolan singer uh, called La Teju. And it's just probably amongst the most beautiful songs that I got to hear over the last six months. So I just wanted
0: to share it. That's an awesome drop. Drops that are inspirational and and music related are always appreciated. I always have a few of those myself. So I look forward to hearing the song, actually. That's quite a recommendation. So, you know, this has been amazing. I had no doubt that we would have a really great conversation and I was not let down by that. And the, the great thing about the time that we're recording this is that, like you said, you're in France, I'm in New York, it's early for me. So the good part about this is that I get the opportunity to go into the rest of my day filled with energy from this conversation. So, you know, Eva, it was a, a real pleasure having you on the deep dive with me.
1: It was a pleasure to be around. And really what I love about conversations, actually, you said, an episode comes to an end. And Obviously, you know, from a very material perspective, it does. <laughs> Hopefully soon for our yeah. listeners so that they don't have to spend all of their days just listening to us. But in the meantime, for me, what I love is that conversations that I take part in, that I'm lucky to take part in, are actually building my thinking as well. And they contribute to actually just like connecting the dots between very different things that I hear from different people. So I feel actually very blessed to be part of this episode that for me is part of a longer season. Uh, (laughs) So thanks so much for having me once again.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Take care. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website thedeepdivepod.com download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at Far To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.